at the end of chapter 11, you have this incredible expression of praise, this incredible doxology, and then this, this calling where he is exhorting. Uh, in fact, the word uh, beseech, um, verse 1 of chapter 12, could also be translated exhort, and it is actually translated in verse 8, he who exhorts. It's the same Greek word. And, um, but to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is go back and add to some of that again on Sunday. And not being conformed to the world, uh, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God. So he, he lands on this idea of being able to prove or to be able to test or to be able to understand the um, good and acceptable will of God, which, again, I will cover on Sunday. So from there he goes forward and... He says, for I say through the grace given me to everyone who is among you, uh, not to think of himself, or not to think, you notice, now, I have a New King James, so it has the of himself in italics. Now, when you find uh, words in italics in most of your English Bibles, but not all of them, what that is telling us is that it's not part of the original text. It's been added by the translators. Um, NIV, what do you have just for fun? Um, not to think of yourself. Okay. Did Dave, it sounded like you had a little bit different translation. What? Of himself. Okay. What was yours? Okay. I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it later. Um, yeah, because I... Actually, I'm, I'm still fighting around with translations. I really like the NASB, but I don't like this Bible uh, because I, I, I'm, I'm used to a concordance, and this one doesn't have any references because sometimes I'm pulling them out of the blue. You don't know this, or maybe you can tell because it's like the long pause, you know. But, you know, I, I like a concordance. I like a concordance when I teach, actually, um, just although sometimes I can't see the numbers um, but, or the letters or whatever. Um, it happens. Um, but uh, so I, I'm, I'm thinking either the, the Christian Standard Bible or the English Standard Version, one of the two. I, I actually like both of those. And um, I forgot to bring my Christian Standard to read some of this to you tonight. But um, what is telling us here is to not think more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So we're going to spend some time on verse 3 before we, we start talking about spiritual gifts. Um, but I, as I read this, I, it really struck me that it was a warning against spiritual pride. It's a warning against spiritual pride. I think, I think the, the verse itself makes that fairly obvious. But it's given us in the context of his exhortation to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and not being conformed to the world, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable for the will of God. In other words, he's exhorting them to move on to spiritual maturity. And one of the markers of spiritual maturity is to be able to d discern God's will, which is 
can be very elusive at times. Be very, you know, or even even when we go through times like, God, why am I going through this, right? And, and so, but he's exhorting them to be transformed so that they could prove what is a good and perfect will of God. In other words, they can test it. They'll know. Um, in other words, there's, there's a, almost like a litmus test to the discernment process. Does that make sense? Right? Um, the problem with that is all of a sudden you start having some success, for lack of a better term. I don't even know if that's even a good word. You start seeing this being fulfilled in your life. Is that better? I think that's better. And you start feeling pretty good about your spirituality. And you start to think that, wow. And I kind of touched on this Sunday, didn't I? When I talked about pride and humility and, and how, how, you know, God is constantly at work and all of a sudden you realize you're not the humble person that you are. You've got more pride than you think. And then all of a sudden God works on you, works on you, works on you. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm humble again. And then everybody started laughing. I remember that, that part, right? And so, but there's the danger, the danger of spiritual success. Or that's not a good word. I've said, I use that word twice now. The danger of seeing your life being that which is fulfilling the exhortations and the imperatives. Remember where I talked about imperatives on Sunday? The commands, the exhortations and the imperatives of Scripture. And you start to see your life fulfill that. And, and it, it's, it's exciting. Um, you want to see it happen more frequently. You would like to see it happen a little bit quicker. Right? And, and so he's, he's telling us not to think of ourselves more highly than we should. And he's doing it, first of all, he exhorted us by the mercies of God. Now he is saying to us through the grace given to him. Those are, I think those are important markers as well. He in, exhorts us through the grace of God and God's un, unmerited, I'm sorry, um, God's uh, continual pursuit of our souls because of how much he loves us mercy and then he is telling us through the grace that's been given him now if anyone had cause for spiritual pride it would have been paul it would have been paul i don't know perhaps he suffered from it uh he was given well, he talked about the thorn in the flesh, First, Second Corinthians chapter uh, 9 through 11. He speaks about it. He keeps going back to it through those three chapters. Uh, and he, he talked about the, the thorn in the flesh that was given to him to, he uses the word of the New King James anyway, to buffet him um, because of what he'd experienced. He, he describes his experience that it sounds like he was in heaven. And it could have been when he was stoned, that is, they threw rocks at him, all right, in Derby. Um, or in, and 
in Lystra. And so, um, but he said he had this experience, and so he had this thorn in the flesh, and he asked three times for the Lord to remove it. And what did the Lord tell him? My grace is sufficient for you. So he's learning that through the grace of God, is he implying something here? I don't know. I'd have to go back and really try to uh, um, winnow out the timeline to see if his, his experience that, uh, of, the, of the thorn in the flesh was after he wrote Romans or was it before. I think it was after, but don't quote me on that. All right. But this idea of, of grace, and, and what does grace mean? What, if you thought about grace, and I've, we've talked about grace, you know, in the past, but what, is, um, what does it mean to have the grace of God? Receiving something that you don't deserve. Okay? Yes. Anything else? Okay, we'll go with that one. Uh, now, it's a good one, actually. But, uh, you know, I did look it up, and, and part of the, this word it is the Greek word charis. Now, it's C-H, not K. Charis, that's important, by the way, because when we start talking about gifts, I'll let the cat a little bit out of the bag. We're talking about the charisma. All right? It's, it's important. Uh, do you know what a suffix is? Something that's attached to the end of a word. Like, um, I know this, I am knowing. The I-N-G could be considered a suffix, right? In the Greek, the suffix M-A, pronounced ma, means the result of whatever the word is. So, charis means grace. Charisma, or charisma, depending on what program you want to listen to, and I'm not going to pronounce it like the one I listened to because it sounds weird. Um, it means the results of God's grace, essentially. Got ahead of myself, but well, I'll re- remind you of that later, a little bit later. But it's this idea of this practical application of goodwill on the part of God and on the, on the part of Christ. A practical application of goodwill. Because I think at times we want to think that grace is this ethereal thing that we just kind of float off and, you know, and kind of feel kind of buzzed a little bit, you know, on this Jesus high, Right? Um, I mean, I'm the only one that was around during the, or you were around during the Jesus movement. But I mean, I heard that so much. I, I hated the, the bumper sticker, get high on Jesus, you know. It was like, anyway. Um, but I think at times we, 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 we tend to think of God's grace as this, this warm, fuzzy thing that encompasses us. Now, is that true? It can be. All right, it can be. But grace and the results of grace, that is the gifts, have a very practical feet-on-the-ground type of application to them. That's why I want to really focus on this idea of grace. And so he's telling them, because your mind has been transformed or because I have encouraged you to be transformed in your mind, and because you're going to you're going to follow this imperative, um, and you're going to see fruit in your life. That's really the word I was looking for when I said success. All right, so I'm back. All right, so you see you see fruit in in your life, but don't become spiritually proud because of the fruit. 
Incidentally, fruit and gifts are two separate things, although they're interrelated. So I didn't notice that in your handout, you don't have Galatians 5 there anywhere, do you? At least I don't think you did. Some of them want to run them together, and I, 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 I like separating them. But, you know, your mileage may vary. Okay. So um, it's the idea of grace is this idea of being in the favored status. Um, New King, I think it's in the New King James. Um, the Old King James is interesting because uh, it talks, the first time it uses the word favored is in the book of Genesis where it said Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The New King James translates that grace in the eyes of God. Now, it's out of the Hebrew, not the Greek, so it's a different, it's not the word charis, and I didn't look it up in the, the Septuagint to see if that translated over or not. Um, but he, he's telling them, because of God's grace and the thorn became the thorn of the flesh, follow this, the thorn in the flesh became an occasion for God to pour out his grace even more abundantly. Now, does that sound, enthe- uh, does that sound um, encouraging? Not really. But it's, it was the reality in his life. It's in the reali- we see this in, in reality when, when we go through suffering of however magnitude, uh, God seems to meet us with his grace even more. Or where sin abound, Grace abounds even more. And so, um, by the grace of God, he's telling us not to think of yourself more highly than you, you ought. The Greek, uh, the Greek word uh, hyper or hooper, uh, hyperphroneo, is translated from t- four English words, to think more highly. The rest of them are inserted in that little section of that verse, of verse 3. So to think more highly. Uh, and it really means, uh, it really refers to arrogance or having an unwarranted pride in oneself uh, and in a person's accomplishments. It also could be translated or it does mean to someone who is conceited, uh, someone who is proud. And yet, and so... I know that none of us have ever met proud people, right? I know that none of us here are proud. And, but I, I, t- I tell you what, it's, I've met some really arrogant people. And uh, I, if I wasn't recording this, I would tell you where I met them. But anyway, um, my doctoral program. But anyway, um, It's like they're smoking their own brand of weed, okay? Uh, I mean, it's like, what is wrong with you? What? And they're not, you know, thank God they're not sharing because that friend with weed is not a friend indeed, okay? (laughs) Okay, I've just revealed enough about me that I need to, but anyway. uh, (laughs) But it's like they're on a, they're on a, this elevated plane and it's like, how did you even get there, Right? 
And, and, but the, it's, it's interesting because there's a reason why I'm bringing this up, by the way. Um, okay. Um, because the alternative that we're given here in this verse, the, the Bible gives us the alternative to that type of pride and arrogance is soberness. It's soberness. And um, we're called to be soberly minded. And th- that word so- soberly minded, um, it means to be prudent. It means to have a focus of self-control or to be reasonable, to be sensible, uh, serious. And it, I like what it said at the end of this definition. This is, it said, to keep one's head. In other words, they didn't lose their head. Don't, you don't lose your head about yourself. In other words, you stay in reality. I've met a lot of arrogant, well, I've met enough arrogant people that it just seems like they're not, they're on a different plane. They're, they're not, they're not, they're, they're not in, they're not, they don't see reality. Um, no wonder the DSM, DSM-5 says it's a personality disorder called narcissism. But um, we're called to be soberly minded. And Again, I, I love this definition because it's a focus on self-control. And, you know, I used to never like self-control until I realized that the, opt- the, the alternative was usually a whole lot worse. <laughs> You're smiling and laughing. <laughs> anyway, but I mean, but, uh, you know, and one of the things about self-control, at least I've noticed in myself, that I try to catch myself more. You know, I try to catch myself. Um, usually if I'm real quiet, it usually means you probably made me mad. I'm trying to catch myself. But anyway, uh, um, and, and, but, but to have a focus on our self-control, to, to have a focus on reasonableness, which, again, happens when our minds are transformed. It goes back to verse 2. Not being conformed to the world, not being conformed to the narcissistic world, self-centered world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we have self-control, so that we have a sense of prudence, so that we are reasonable, that we are sensible. sensible. And I would add that we give room for the Spirit of God to speak. And, and give pause to allow the Spirit of God to speak. Because your, your experience may be different. But what I've found in my own life, uh, particularly in the heat of the moment, which is really not a good place to be, right? Um, you got to listen. Because the voice, the still small voice is still, still, still and small and quiet. And sometimes even in in the heat of the battle, you've got to seek it out. But to be soberly minded, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. 
So this all comes back to faith. I know you're chewing on it, aren't you? Go on, let's hear it. What's, what, you got a question? <laughs> you're working on it. It doesn't imply or it does imply? I didn't quite hear that. You don't think it does? I, I asked too early, didn't I? <laughs> I wasn't thinking soberly. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I think this goes back to what I talked about Sunday before last of this idea of our sanctification and, and this idea of our understanding of God's mercy and our full understanding and appreciation of God's mercy is directly related or corresponds to our ability to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And I, I've known guys that were, they had hands laid upon them too quickly. And in ministry. And because of their charisma, their gifting, and some people just have that natural whatever, um, able to attract a crowd and, and, and have a huge drawing, and it, it ruined them. I, I, I had a friend of mine, he walked away from a really good church because he wanted a better one. And he went to a different place in a different part of this country, and he got his head handed to him. Uh, but he thought he was going to take that place by storm. And it was like, wow, you know, um, Stop being soberly minded. So, why did I bring that up? What am I talking about? A measure of faith. Part of that measure of faith, I think, has to do with our ability to comprehend the mercy of God so that we have the capacity to present ourselves as a living sacrifice or our bodies as a living sacrifice. And this idea of a measure of faith, I, I really don't think... <coughs> And this would be one of the verses that I would go to to prove this point. I really don't think God requires anything more of us. Now, I'm talking about the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, be, whether your life is wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, and precious uh, jewels. And, and when we stand before God and offer our life to him, is it going to be consumed up or is it going to be purged as through the fire and i really don't think god ever requires more than us than what we have the capacity to do and we have the capacity to do by the measure of faith and by the grace in this case the grace being that sense of empowerment from the Holy Spirit to do those things that he's called us to do. Does that make sense? 
Exactly. Yeah. And <sighs> let not many of you become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. See, my judgment is I have to be in the pastor section of heaven, and I'm looking to work my way out of it. And, and, uh, uh, and there, there is something incredibly fulfilling about being used by God that really is, a, it goes beyond comprehension. You have the peace of God that goes beyond our understanding. That being used of God, there, there's something about it that just, that just permeates our souls and is fulfilling, but it then it creates a desire. It creates a hunger to do it again. Now, desire is not bad. I, I, think, I think we get holy longings, desires, longings. I'm using them interchangeably. The Greek word eros, which... Yes, it is where we get the word erotic, but that's not the full meaning of the word, okay? It simply means desire. And uh, if you never desired to eat, what would happen to you? Come on, nurses. You would die, right? If you never desired a drink of water, you would die. Desires are God-given. The problem with desire is that we want to stop relinquishing the control of them over to God and take control of them and appropriate them to ourselves. That's the problem with desire. Absolutely. Because now you are not being soberly minded. You know, you've had your own brand. It's a very thin line. And the problem is, the problem, the problem is, is, remember, what was it? What was it, Dove? 99 and 44, 100% pure. Is that the stupid thing? Okay, the, yeah. It, it, we, we always have a mixture within us. Just who we are. And, and. So when it's, when, when I'm, st I'm still talking about the measure of faith here, too, okay? So God gives me this measure of faith, which is a gift. doesn't say it here in Romans. It does say it in other passages. Excuse me. I'm not going to look. Um, God gives us the measure of faith, and... The question is, is how are we going to steward that measure of faith? And you have the parable of the, of the minus. Remember the parable of the minus that Jesus spoke about? One guy got one. One guy got three. One guy got five. Okay? The, the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the king or the Lord gives the minus to his three servants, and he goes away to a far country and you have the guy who had five, he multiplied it into ten. The guy who had three, I believe he multiplied it into five. And the guy who had one, what did he do? He buried it. 
because he knew that the, his Lord was a severe and, uh, what's the word, uh, austere man, and that he, he, he took from, from things that he did not reap. He sowed from things that he did not reap, and, 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 and uh, so he had that minor taken away from him and given to the guy who had ten. So God will judge us in accordance to the measure of faith that he gives us, not according to the measure of faith that he gives someone else. And it, it goes back to what I've, I've said to you guys before, especially with non-Christians. I think this is true with Christians as well, but with non-Christians, as God gives us light, understanding, and we respond to that light, then he gives us more light. Now, again, I think it's a measure of faith, and as we are faithful, he gives us more because the reality is he knows that if he gives us too much at the beginning, it's just going to ruin us. And we don't have the spiritual maturity. Why? Because our minds have not been renewed. We have not been transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have not learned to think soberly. Therefore, we become bad stewards of the measure of faith that God has given us. See how it all, it all it really does, it really does roll and tie in together. So, with that in mind, is there any wonder why he introduced this idea of gifts in verse 5? It makes perfect sense to me. And he tells us in verse 4, um, that for as, I have a lot of time, for as, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. He goes into a more, much more detail in this, or on this concept of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then again in chapter 14. But the, the idea of the functioning of the many members in one body and all members do not have the same function. Um, I think that's difficult for some people. Because I think some, and, and I've met a few, a, a few guys, um, they really wanted to be something else other than what it appeared that God gave them. And they, it seems like they spend a good portion of their life chasing after something that, that God hasn't given them, which is really uh, a tragedy. Um, it's also a person who often it is that someone is thinking more highly of themselves than they should or ought. Because they see what God has given others. They see what God has given them, but they want more. But, and I think, I think sometimes we, we think God, God works like a, like a regular employer. Which he doesn't, by the way. But, you know, okay, so I, I'm starting in the mailroom. Lack of a better way to say it. 
And if I do the mail room really well, I'll get promoted. And eventually I'll get my own cubicle, right? And, and, uh, but, but that's not necessarily the ways of the kingdom. Because what I, I, I can pretty much tell you that, and I saw this in construction, the, all the apprentices, did they want to stay apprentices? No. They wanted to be a journeyman. Why wouldn't they? They got paid a lot more. But a lot of them, they wanted to fast track through the apprenticeship. Just, just get me on that prevailing wage job and everything will be good, you know. Um, and, and, and here he, he's telling us, for as we have many members of the body, not all members do, the ha do not, but all members don't have the same function. So in some respects, now, now take this with a grain of, well, yeah, take it with a grain of salt. How you walk with Christ is going to be shaped in some respects by the measure of faith that he's given you, by the grace that he's given you. Because of that, it may look a little different than somebody else's. Where I'm always worried about, and especially as I get some of the feedback at times from my last church is they, you preach, you teach the Bible and, and they see this as so universal that, that it's like we all got to think the same, act the same, dress the same, be the same, look the same, talk the same, you know, it's just boring, you know. But that, that's not, while these things are, are, these truths that are given to us in the word are, yes, they are, truths that apply to each and every person, they may look a little bit differently on someone else. Can you make a grand piano sound like a good acoustic guitar? Just say no. You can't, okay? You can't. I mean, if you've got a processor, you can do it, make anything almost sound like anything. But I, I, and I love that about the, the orchestra. They all sound different, don't they? Right? The trumpet and the trombone, they're both brass instruments, and they sound different. They have a different tone. You know, woodwinds, the oboe and the clarinet. Um, even different, viol you know, stringed instruments, violins, violas, you know, they, they have a different tone to them. And, and so recognizing that God has given you the measure of faith so that you as that instrument can produce the tone that he has called you to produce. And don't try to measure up to somebody else. Because chances are they may not be doing a good job at what God has been given them. So why do you want to measure against them anyway? A fine line between a biblical call to stewardship, which is part of what you touched on, play and and I and I alluded to it with with the story that Jesus told of the of the minus the parable of the minus there's a fine line between stewardship and just flat out God does what he does because God has decided that this is what he's going to do and it has nothing to do with your merit because the reality is grace is what 
unmerited favor. So it's it's a, it's it, it's in a, in a way it's like walking a razor's edge. You know, it's and, and it's to me in, in my thinking it's the same theological problems that we have with God's sovereignty and God's free will. It's the same the tension. You know, what what how am I stewarding that which God has given me and what what part of God's giving me that he's giving me simply because he has decided that this is what he's going to do regardless of who I am. And there are times that that uh, gosh, I, there are times I've, I, I feel like I, I, I didn't say a thing that made sense. I had a Sunday like that a couple of Sundays ago. I didn't think I said a thing that made sense. And I, part of it because I just tried to take on way too much. And people were coming up and they're like, oh, that was really good. I was really blessed by that. And I'm like, I want to go home and resign, you know. You know, so it's it's one of the, I think one to me one of the most comforting things about teaching the Bible is that I know that God wants to bless His people a whole lot more than anything else. So I can rest in that. It's like, thank God you do, right? So this idea of then gifts differing according to the grace, and and I gave you a list. We're gonna we're gonna stick to the text in this, although well we might. How's that? Um, but let's let's talk about gifts first, and let's take three minutes, which we need more. But let's talk about this idea of gifts. Incidentally, gosh, I, I can't resist. First Corinthians chapter twelve. You see it in your paper, eight through nine. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, yeah, I think we will deal with this some more. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, it says, concerning spiritual gifts. Go ahead and, uh, uh, I'm curious what the ESV says. You're looking, looking it up, right, David? Okay, because I'm curious whether the word gifts are in italics. Okay, the reason why is because it's not in the original language. The, the translation is concerning pneumatikos, not charisma. It is the operation of the Spirit. It's considered to be a gift. I, I'm not always sure I really like that, but I like this chart, so I threw it in here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the pneumatikos. Notice I said both words have similar, or both words are derived from similar words, charis, grace, and pneuma, spirit. So it's pneumatikos, which means, which is where we get our word pneumatic. You know what a pneumatic tool is, don't you, Don? An air tool. Um, that's what it's referring to. Are they gifts? I'm not sure. We, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more next week. But let me know if you get there, David. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, and where it says, it, does it have the word gifts there in the verse? And if so, is it in italics? Okay. A lot of times the ESV will not italicize words that are not in the original language. Don't ask me why. I haven't a clue. I know the New King James does. Um, but this idea of gifts. Um, now, there are different views on the spiritual gifts. There are those who believe that 
they were for the early church. Because you say, and I know groups, you say gifts, and what do they say? Ah, you guys are with me. Gifts. It's like a knee-jerk response. I want to slap them. But anyway, uh, it drives me crazy. And they will go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And they will say, it says right here, verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that, then that which is in part will be done away. All right? They interpret that which is perfect as the canon of the Bible, the full New Testament, which, by the way, didn't happen until the 4th century. And there's considerable debate about whether the Bible was discovered, the canon was discovered, or whether it was revealed. And I don't want to get into that. There's a difference, revelation or discovery, authorization, okay? But I don't believe that that's what this verse is talking about. I believe this verse is saying that which is perfect has come. I think it's talking about the second coming. That's my opinion. So... This idea of going to this verse saying, see, this means that the gifts are no longer in effect. And I would say, I don't agree with you. I believe that the gifts, all of them, including the T one, is a gift for today. Now, there is a time and there is a place and let all things be done decently and in order, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians um, 14. But I believe all the gifts are for today. Can they be abused? Yes. What time is that? I got two minutes, right? <laughs> no wonder he's still. <laughs> so he's got, the, he's got the watch. If I'm really saying something good that he wants, or the, the, the not good, I want him to be quiet watch, and, this, and the neutral watch. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, you, you've got the job. That's his gift, the official timekeeper. Of the, okay. So I cannot find anywhere in the Scripture that says that these things were for the early church and they're not for today. We don't have a lot of time, remember? Okay, but love never fails, verse 8. Whether there are prophecies, that's a gift, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, that's a gift, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, that's a gift, it will fall away, it will vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So, yes, it is talking about gifts in the context. The question, the $6 million question on verse 9 is, what is that which is perfect? Okay, what is that which is perfect? Christ. If you've taken any kind of study on textual criticism, you know that there are some inherent problems in the Bible. Is the Bible infallible? Yes, in its original form. Is the Bible God's inspired word? Yes, I think even in the form we have today. But they're, they're, now, for example, who wrote the end of Deuteronomy? Did Moses come back from the dead and write it? That's just one example. Why do the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't always have the same events in the same order? Gosh, I better stop or else I'm going to dismantle your faith. But I, and I think there's some good reasons for that, by the way. 